B2B marketing is business strategy at the end of the day. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and I will be your host and bartender. On this show, we hear from marketing leaders who are crafting killer strategies in SaaS. And today I am pumped to be joined by Kimberly Storen, VP of Worldwide Marketing at IBM Cognitive Systems. So I had the opportunity to meet Kimberly earlier on in the fourth quarter at a empowered CMO retreat in Napa Valley, right? Poor me. I know, a work trip to Napa. But it was a room full of 90 female executives who all represented B2B tech and B2B SaaS companies. It was an incredible experience. And throughout the couple of days, we had a chance to to speak with nearly everyone. And what struck me as really interesting about Kimberly was she certainly was incredibly smart, right? Given the nature of the business that she works in and her title, but she was extremely engaging. She was someone who you can connect with right away and was equally comfortable talking about her personal life as she was with her professional life. So I thought she'd be a great guest for this show. And if you follow Kimberly on on LinkedIn or have seen her speak, something that she is extremely passionate about is driving digital transformation in the enterprise and specifically how AI is being incorporated into the enterprise to lead this charge. And while this is a topic that is talked about fairly regularly, what struck me as really interesting is who she thinks should be the leaders of this change. And she thinks that should be the CMO. So that's something that we unpack on today's episode. So without further ado, let's grab a drink with Kimberly. Thank you for having me. And thank you for um, encouraging me to, to drink a margarita at 10 a.m. <laughs> Absolutely. We, you and I had the pleasure of meeting in person in Napa Valley in October during an Empowered CMO event. And as things happen in Napa, we were drinking wine and, and we drink on this show. Uh, so I, I appreciate you uh, hitting the sauce at the AM hour because it is uh, early in Austin. It is. It is bright and early. So might as well start start early. Speaking of your margarita, what, what specifically are you drinking today? Yes, today I, um, I'm, I'm going with the El Pepino margarita. I'm sticking with the uh, go-to of citron and soda this morning. We'll go ahead and dive in. Um, If any of you guys happen to follow Kimberly on LinkedIn um, or had the pleasure of meeting her, you'll see one of the topics that she's extremely passionate about is using AI to drive digital transformation and and sort of what it takes for organizations to get on board and, and drive success. And Kimberly, what struck me as particularly interesting is who you think should be leading the AI transformation because you think it's the CMO. I do. Um, and that's because, you know, mostly I work with, with IT and, and data scientists and marketing and other lines of business tend to be the last in the, the collaboration mix. And the more time that I've spent with clients of ours, everyone from, you know, from JP Morgan to, to Dillard's to, to Medallia to, to other great companies, the more I, I realize how much more progress could be made, not only if the organization took a different lens to, to AI transformation, but also if the, the line of business and, and the marketing leadership had a, a much stronger leadership role in that AI transformation. 
And we're going to dive a lot deeper into into that theory. Um, but I do want to take a step back and, and sort of bring listeners into who you are and, and why you're you're qualified and why you're someone who's leading the charge um, on AI transformation. Everybody knows IBM. We, we've talked about that. Can you give everybody the speed dating version of what the cognitive systems business unit does, who you sell to, and the problems that the business solves? Absolutely. So cognitive systems has a hardware and a software portfolio of products. And and how we really were conceived is we started as a, you know, a core server business for for the company. As we started to look at where that business could grow and expand and we we really looked at the the core capabilities of our architecture. That's where we realized that AI is just like any other data intensive workload. In terms of collaboration that's needed and the business transformation that comes along with it. But what we realized is that the the servers and the software that we are building can actually transcend those data intensive workloads. And so we what we did is we really started from scratch and we went back to the drawing board and we said, what can we do with, with these servers and with the software to make them ready for the AI journey? And so we built a new breed of, of servers and a new breed of, of software that were really designed for the AI era. And so over the last four years, you know, we've continued to invest in, in that core server and infrastructure business, but we've also built a, a, new, a new type of infrastructure specifically designed for, for AI. Something that I latched on to is that currently the probability of AI success is low, which most people would agree only one in five AI projects are actually successful. So it's, it's actually lower than I thought. So why? What are people getting so wrong? So I think, so right now we're at a place where everyone you talk to believes in the promise of AI. And you see a new research study on this topic on a daily basis, right? Accenture just put out one recently and, and they talked about you know 75% of, of organizations believe that they will not be successful unless they implement AI. We've undertaken a pretty big research project with 566 executives across the, the world and, and have seen you know, very similar um, results in terms of, of the sheer number of executives that buy into that promise. But when you actually you know, peel away the layers and you start to see the amount of failure that's happening, you know, we see, see one in five AI projects failing. Gartner has a very similar number that they've, they've shared with me as well. That's, a, that's right in that range. And, and I really think that ultimately what's happening is that so many of these AI projects are happening in a vacuum. And, and you're seeing rogue investments, servers under desks, decisions to, you know, to try out new chatbots or, or AI applications without really stepping back and figuring out how can this help our business moving forward? And so what's really interesting, we were really surprised in our research to see how many people raise their hand to say, yes, we're failing. And, and I think that is one of the, you know, the best things about where we are in this AI journey, because I think we've, we've been here so many times before, right, starting in the 1950s, that you know, people are willing to, to stand up and say, it's not working for me. I want to figure out how to get it right. It is so important to the future of my business, but we don't know how to get it right. And and that siloed approach is really, you know, in my mind, what's holding a lot of companies back 
from being able to to increase that probability of success. So it sounds like there that many organizations are willing they're they're not necessarily able but they're too focused on the the shiny object of AI and hearing that you you need to to implement it somehow but it's not grounded in any real business problem they're not they're not defining the why behind the AI. Exactly. And and they're all happening in a vacuum, right? They're all happening with rogue projects, data scientists taking the lead and then and then the business and IT scrambling to to catch up. It's it's a real challenge. So how do you how do you get all those departments together? What are some of the first steps? Well, I think the first thing that we've seen that equates to success. So our research that we just completed um, where we talked to 566 executives, we saw a correlation between the companies that are seeing real results. And we measured across 26 metrics, most of them financial, but also looking at, at failure and, and also client centricity. So how fast are you able to, to build and build products and services right for your, your clients? So we looked at a variety of metrics. And, and what we saw from a correlation standpoint is that the companies that are building their capabilities in-house, close to the core and controlled, have a significantly higher probability of success than the the companies that are outsourcing. So so what that tells me, right, is because we're in such a nascent phase, and if you talk to any of these companies, they're doing more than one type of AI technology, right? There's no silver bullet. So you don't talk to anyone who is focused only on deep learning or only on machine learning or only on natural language or only on vision. Most of these companies are are playing around with all of it, and there's no silver bullet. And, and in order to, to be experimenting, you have to build that capability in-house at this point, right? We're just too nascent and there's too many shiny objects out there. And so when, when you realize that AI is so important to your competitive advantage that you don't want to outsource it, you want to keep the technology, the data, the resources in-house, then that basically means you have to take a whole new approach to, to culture and organization. And, and you're going to have to, to bring in the resources, but you're also going to have to address how those resources work together. One of the things that, that we've noticed uh, as a PR agency is, is certainly that all of our clients have some sort of an AI play, whether it's developed in-house or they're you know, purchasing a solution. How should marketers be promoting or messaging their AI efforts externally? How does that make customers feel? Should they wait until there's tangible results before they talk about it? What's your thought process on that? So I absolutely think they need to go beyond pilot in order to to start actively communicating it. Um, and and to be able to to answer the questions about the why, and also to answer the question, to ensure that, that they're addressing bias and, and ethics. And so a lot of these, these small pilots in many ways are just that, right? They're just pilots. And as a, an AI workload scales and goes from pilot to being operational to being in production, there's a lot of other pieces that, that come into play and bias and ethics is one of them. And so if the organization is, is taking AI seriously, and they're thinking about those downstream impacts, there will be a lot of work that has to be done in that pilot and an operational phase to ensure that they're thinking through the downstream impacts. And so I think there's some use cases that you know, are, are more straightforward, like a chatbot, 
um, where they've been around for a while. Marketing organizations have been leveraging them for a long time, and and there may not have you know as many potential data privacy or ethical issues as you may have with other use cases. But as marketers are testing other use cases, getting into where does the data live? What's our view from an organization around data privacy? Um, what's our view around the you know the the bias and the ethics of AI? There's going to be a lot of downstream impacts, and I do believe personally that the organization as a whole has to have that point of view developed before they start talking about one-off AI solutions. So if your organization is you know really forward thinking around AI and has a you know fully thought through center of excellence and has a thought leadership position on on the their position around bias and and ethics and AI then I think it makes it a lot easier for marketers to go out and talk about the work that they're doing but without having that view of the bigger business strategy but also the ethical point of view there's there's always that gray area so I I'm always very cautious of of talking too much about pilots before there is a you know, full end-to-end point of view by the company. I want to pause here briefly and touch on something that Kimberly shared. I had asked her as a marketer, when should you start promoting the work that you're doing as it relates to either internal digital transformation or AI that's being incorporated into your product, or if it is inherent in your product, when as a marketer do you start talking about it? And Kimberly's answer was certainly well past the point of simply that we're doing it or that it works. And I wanted to particularly unpack this and and see how other B2B SaaS marketers might think about marketing their success stories. And it's a great example for us here at Blast Media because most of our clients um, working with all B2B SaaS companies either have AI built into their product or AI is truly their product. One example that comes to mind is our client Moogsoft. And Moogsoft is based in the Bay and they are artificial intelligence for IT operations or AI ops for short. It uses machine learning to analyze technical problems. But when we started working with Moogsoft, I mean, their, their product is AI. And it's not what it does that makes it interesting necessarily. And that's not the story that we lead with. It's how their AI is transforming their clients' businesses and having real measurable impact. So we took a look at what are the rampant business problems that their target customers are are having and, and how does their AI help solve that problem? So when we dug a little bit further into that, we realized that their clients were having extreme benefit from their product and actual numbers associated. Um, And we found out that their customer, Fannie Mae, by implementing Moogsoft's product, they cut their IT problems by a third, their number of IT incidents by a third. And that's pretty impactful. So latching onto that, um, we were able to pitch that story to the Wall Street Journal and and get a lead story. And you know what that headline was? It was AI cuts IT problems at Fannie Mae by a third. So customer was the starring role, 
Mooksoft was the supporting cast, um, but it was what AI was doing to truly impact the business, um, not just about the AI itself. Um, and I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, as marketers, do you wait for the tangible results or do you do more jump at the opportunity to make a, you know, make a cool product before there are results to show? I, I certainly invite listeners to share their opinion. Uh, but let's jump back into the conversation with Kimberly. We're going to move into metrics that she's measured by and her take on B2B versus B2C marketing. As the person responsible for all demand gen, how are you ultimately measured and to whom do you report those metrics? <laughs> we have a lot of metrics at IBM and and I'm really measured across all routes to market. So what that means is I look at demand gen as a key piece of my marketing strategy, but it's not just about marketing sourced revenue, although that's very important. Um, but it's also how is marketing driving sales assist and and channel OI and and how are we supporting all routes to market? And so that requires that we have multiple demand gen strategies essentially that are you know not just addressing digital marketing or the you know the end to end event type of, of demand gen, but then we're also thinking about how are we helping us, our sellers identify and progress deals? How are we helping the, the channel partners have enough air cover to, to get that meeting and, and start to nurture that, that prospective client? And so when I really think about demand gen, I've got to look at all routes to market and say, how does, how does marketing support each of these stakeholders at, at each moment in time? across that end-to-end -end journey. So we measure pretty much everything at, at every point. And, and as you can imagine, with a company the size of IBM, we have a very large <laughs> MarTech stack. And, and I've got a great team of, of marketing analytics folks who are able to, to really dive into that data and help us understand what's working and what's not. Where is our digital marketing tactics driving engagement? Where aren't they? Where is our search optimized? Where isn't it? And and how do we we really focus on on being able to to make changes and tweaks in a an agile manner? And we've actually adopted in our marketing organizations the you know agile with a capital A <laughs> methodology, and we've built those cross functional teams that are able to look at the campaigns end to end. And, and continue to optimize each piece of those campaigns. And, and they, they are working truly in a you know, lowercase agile fashion <laughs> through the, the uppercase agile process. And that's really been a way to, to empower the teams to be able to make decisions based on the metrics that they're seeing on a daily basis. And there's metrics that you certainly care about. And then there's going to be metrics that the the C-suite or who you have to report into cares about. What, as you start to, to swim upstream, what seem to be the metrics that matter to that level? You know, it really depends on the person, which has been surprising uh, because I've seen, I've seen ultimately, I mean, at the end of the day, the pipeline is the the key metric, right? How are we, how are we doing in our pipeline creation? How are we doing in our pipeline progression? And, and that's really the key that we report up to, to the C-level on a biweekly basis, essentially. And so as that you know, pipeline grows or shrinks, we're being held accountable to, to that. But what's interesting is that 
our our C level and our our SVPs have also taken an overall interest in marketing, and so I've seen them very engaged in terms of how our PR is performing. You know, are we reaching the right the right clients through the right publications? Are we seeing the right kind of engagement online? Are we seeing the right kind of of chatter um, across our analyst community? So I really see you know while they they look at the pipeline numbers as kind of that core health of of marketing they also are really looking for you know how much are we driving even outside of that pipeline and how much awareness are we we shifting in the market do you feel that b2b marketers are measured differently than a b2c marketer are they held to to a different standard i think so um and i the reason you know i've been actually thinking quite a bit about this lately and i, I think the reason why is because there is a co- level of complexity that comes with B2B. And your your clients are starting to think like consumers. That's absolutely true. B2B marketing, B2B decisions, I should say, are more emotional decisions than consumer decisions, at least according to an old Google and, and CEB report. But people are worried about their job is on the line and, and their ego is on the line. And these are really big, tough decisions. And that leads to really long sales cycles. And that leads to complexity in route to market. Are you primarily a channel business? Are you direct sales? Are you online? And and those, those levels of complexity make B2B marketing really challenging. And for me, I mean, it's the only, it's the only marketing that I want to do, right? Because of that level of complexity and how many pieces of the puzzle that you have to, to pull together. And really understanding that B2B marketing is business strategy at the end of the day. So it's a really exciting place for, for a marketer to be because of that, that same complexity. But it also does lead to a very different type of, of metric and accountability that I see, you know, versus the, the, the consumer marketers that I, that I know. And the amount of, quantitative expectation, I guess I'll say, from from executives around B2B marketing is is much higher. And you don't, while you're still leveraging the same types of tactics and tools, the the way that we track is much more sophisticated and and is much more complicated just based on how many routes to market and and the the view of of influence versus buying. You know that those types of approach in terms of so that type of approach in terms of how a company views marketing appears to me. Again, I haven't been in consumer marketing. I just have a lot of friends in consumer marketing, but it seems like they're not as much held to the same standard of of quantitative expectations as those of us who are in B two B do. Hypothetically speaking, though, industry agnostic, if you could market any other business, what would it be? I just love technology and I can't imagine marketing anything else but but complicated B2B technology. That's just my jam. But if I could run any business overall, my dream is to actually be a race director <laughs> for a marathon, um, which has nothing to do with marketing, but I guess you have to do some marketing. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, Wouldn't that be nice? Then the only metric that you're held to is registrations. Right. And, you know, I guess you're, you're measured to how many real professional runners you get running your race and getting a lot of those sponsors involved. <laughs> that would be my personal dream of being able to be a race director. And there would be some marketing involved there. Are you a runner? 
I am a runner. Um, I'm a long distance runner. And so that's, that's definitely my, my passion. Do you have races coming up in 2020? Are you actively participating in um, half or full marathons? I've got a half um, planned for January here in Austin, but I just did the Paris marathon this year in April. And, and so I'm, I'm in a little bit of a hiatus mode for a bit until I, I pick the next one. <laughs> so please tell me you spent the first part of your trip running and then the second half of your trip not and enjoying all the things that Paris has to offer. Paris and beyond. So we went all the way down to um, to the coast and then drove up and had more wine than you know what to do with. So the French know how to do it. I love it. Well, that's a perfect way to end our conversation today. Do you have a favorite toast that you typically use that you can send us off with? You know, my husband is German, so and I just I spent I spent some time at Oktoberfest this year for the first time. So prost. <laughs> love it. Thanks again to Kimberly for joining us on the show. Super insightful. And if you want to try Kimberly's Paloma Margarita, we are giving away a limited number of drink kits to our listeners being delivered straight to your door. That's right. We're sending you booze. If you go to cocktailcourier.com slash sasshalffull and use promo code software, you can claim a free cocktail kit. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.